Hey everybody, welcome back to the How to Adventure podcast with Aerie in the Air. This is your humble host. Today, we are going to talk about bush planes. I recently went on a really sweet adventure with a friend of mine, Jake. He's a bush plane pilot. We went camping out of his bush plane. When I got back, I wrote up just a little one-page kind of I don't know what I would call it. It's almost like a poem. It's almost like a... Almost a story, almost a poem, almost an intro to Bush Plains. You tell me what it is. I'll read it to you right when we get back. And then after that, we are going to talk about the experience itself. But first, let's cue the dubstep. something that I wrote a while ago after the bush plane trip. I tentatively named it Different Wheels, Different Worlds. I'm not sure about the title. Okay, here we go. In this day and age, there's a lot of ways to get out there. Most of them have four wheels and a steering wheel and take us down familiar roads and highways to our recreational destinations. But by changing the mode of transit, we can change the entire experience. For instance, going by motorcycle is vastly different than a car in many ways. What you can pack, where you can get, and the whole getting there part is very different. But what remains the same is the two-dimensional reality of being stuck to the ground. Cars to motorcycles can change your weekend camping trip at a linear rate. But we're gonna have to introduce another dimension if we're to exponentially change our experience. Welcome to the world of bush planes. These are small yet powerful private planes designed to take off and land in tight, remote spots. They allow you to skip the roads, skip the traffic, and comfortably arrive to the absolute middle of nowhere with all your gear and a portably sized dog. These planes They're amazing examples of human ingenuity, but cars, they kind of are too. What sets this tool apart from its 2D counterparts is the human at the helm, a bush pilot. I'm not talking about any jabroni with a Cessna. I'm talking about the ones that are in tune with their machine, like a cowboy and his horse, a hunter and his gun. Humble in their limitations, knowledgeable about their steed, and dedicated to their craft. This particular cowboy, the one I went with, Jake, he doesn't have cattle to herd and his gun is only for fun. This cowboy utilizes one of the greatest human technologies for the sole purpose of having a great time. Getting places that no horse will take you, sniping short landing strips, and seeing the world from a completely new perspective. It's a rare thing in this world to be able to encounter a machine so capable as a bush plane. But as amazing as these planes are, there's huge risk. 
There's no airbags in this thing. We're going fast. The ground, it's right there. And although it's conceptually familiar to me, this plane is technically alien. I couldn't fly it. I have relented complete control to a human with vastly different skill sets than my own. The pilot is doing his thing, rigid checks and structure, and I trust him, mainly because his ass is on the line right next to mine, but also because he is thorough, thoughtful, and cautious. He is experienced, educated, and he is well aware of the state of his powerful metal bird. All of this is required for a successful and safe dance in the sky between man and machine, and that is exactly what we're looking for. The machine is nothing without his jockey, and the jockey not much without his metal wings, but together they become something infinitely more powerful, a beautiful and poetic relationship from which a new human experienced his birth, not infallible, in fact, completely opposite, like every relationship, but with adept knowledge, loads of practice, and heaps of, heaps of humility, this relationship can take us places we never imagined. So here's to being human, being humble, and having an exponentially more awesome experience than we ever dreamed. Thanks, Jake. Love, Ari. I kind of like that. I kind of like that. It's pretty good. <laughs> so, so I wrote that after a after my first experience in a bush plane where we did an overnight camping trip to a river. So let me tell you about that. My friend Jake, he is a pilot and a aeronautical engineer, so he actually designs airplanes here in Central Oregon. He's very, very smart. He is a free thinker like myself. We are both anarchists and libertarians. So we share similar values. I value his friendship highly and have for a long time. He's one of the smartest people I know. And I've always, as a, as a kid, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And then I wanted to be a stunt plane pilot. And then race car driver took over. But I've always been obsessed with aviation, especially once I became a big time skier. I wanted to ride in helicopters and I loved helicopters. I even thought about going to helicopter school. But Jake has always shown me these videos of his plane and his trips to Alaska, all these crazy places he can land it, landing on gravel bars on the side of rivers in Alaska and Idaho and landing in small, tiny little cutouts of forests in the mountains. I've always been intrigued with his stories. So when he asked me, hey, Ari, you want to go on a little camping trip in the Cessna? I said, absolutely. I cleared my schedule immediately, and we started talking about what exactly we wanted to take. So let me explain the, the um, limitations of this object. It is a 200 and... 40 horsepower engine and this aircraft 
is if it was totally empty with everything else and you were flying at near sea level, you could put four people in it. That The people in the back seats wouldn't be real happy if there were adults. Two kids in the back, totally. So the more stuff you put in this thing, the more limited you are as to where you can land it and where you can take off. So Jake and I are the only people in the plane. So we have lots of room in the back for cargo, but like I said, we want to keep our cargo light so that we're able to land on short landing strips. And that's our plan. The plan is to go to a place called Chucker Flats, which is a short bush plane landing strip on the side of the John Day River, about a hundred and let's just call it a hundred miles north northeast of Bend, Oregon. Jake has been there what he says hundred times. A hundred times. The number is probably not a hundred, but you know what I mean. So I've got this nice soft Yeti cooler. I fill it up with beer and ice. We get our comfortable camping cook equipment. So we're not on a tiny little stove. We just bring the whole camping stove because room's not an issue and weight is worth it. We take a recycling bin full of firewood because where we're going doesn't have trees. We can't scavenge for wood, so we got to bring our own firewood. And we bring a... 22 caliber pistol, lots of cartridges of ammunition. We bring a frisbee, we bring cameras, we bring books. And we also bring Poppy. Poppy is Jake's dog. Poppy probably weighs 17 pounds or something. She's tiny, but she is so cool and she is super fun. She chases deer like almost to a fault where she would like disappear chasing deer. Um, and so Poppy's in the back, kind of laying down on top of our gear. We kind of take our puffy coats out of the bags and we put the puffy coats in to make Poppy a little bed. And we go to the Bend Airport where Jake has his plane hangered. And we load this thing up and we get in, fire this thing up, and I start noticing Jake's checklists and his pre-flight checks. I am a paraglide pilot, and I say pilot because I believe that I am a pilot. Not just because you control an aircraft, I almost say that that's not quite a pilot. Technically, if I were to strap you into a paragliding harness and push you off of a hill, technically for that time, yes, you are the pilot of that aircraft. But I don't think that makes you a pilot. Being a pilot is kind of, it has a higher barrier to entry in my mind. It means that you are aware of the consequences of your mistakes. It means that you are educated and interested in the shortcomings of your aircraft and yourself as a human. It means that you are willing to take those risks with a full understanding of them all the way to the darkest side, right? 
Jake is definitely one of these people. He is definitely one of these people. I like to can I like to say that I wasn't a paraglide pilot until I got about 50 hours or 60 hours in a paraglider. Before that, I was kind of like, I was learning, but I wasn't quite there. I didn't quite understand the whole scene. So to let another person into your aircraft means that you are going to compensate even further for those shortcomings of your mind and your decision-making, the shortcomings of your aircraft, and the random factor that exists in the world. Okay? So, we get to the airport and Jake starts doing his pre-flight check. And I had known Jake for a long time before this, and we had talked about his plane a lot, but when he talks about it, he talks about it in a very cheery, fun, casual way, right? Which is kind of concerning when you go to get in the front seat of this thing with him, right? Until you see how extensive his pre-flight checks are, right? And I start asking him questions about his plane, and he says, oh, yeah, I put that on there myself. Oh, yeah, I re- you know, I had the guy rebuild the engine, but I put the engine in the thing. So it becomes quickly very apparent that Jake and this plane are damn near one and the same. I didn't expect anything less. I mean, I knew that Jake was probably a pilot in the highest degree, but I had never seen the pilot version of Jake. You know, we do things, we dink around, we drink beer and ride bikes and go on hikes and all that fun stuff, so... I I had never experienced this side of him. And what a beautiful thing it is to see a friend that you've known and respected for so long transform into someone vastly more responsible than the person that you knew. Vastly more capable. Vastly more intelligent, educated, and aware than the person you knew. What a beautiful thing. I had previously explained my concern to Jake that I don't like to relent my control. When I was in seventh grade, I had a friend, I was on the back of this stupid little gas-powered scooter, and he was trying to scare me, and he was driving recklessly, and I was telling him to stop, and he wouldn't, uh, so I bailed off the thing into the yard of my neighbor's house when I saw the opportunity, and I skipped across the wet grass, and I crashed into this rock with my knee, and I broke my leg. Ever since then, I'm the one who's in control. That's how I want it to be anyway, right? We get in cars with people all the time, which relents our control, but a little less serious than an aircraft. So I told Jake that I kind of have this control issue, and he said, yeah, well, maybe we're not ready to fly yet together. And this is, like, that's a big statement because we're good friends. Like, we're, like, not a lot of people I look up to like Jake, and we have a great relationship, so... By the time we got to the airport and started pulling this plane out of the hangar, my desire to have control quickly went away. And my desire to further know my friend Jake as his pilot self grew and grew and grew. 
and I couldn't wait to get in the front seat of this thing. And I just wanted to watch him and hear him do his checks and film him because I had brought along my GoPro and my sweet little gimbal. And so we start taxiing down, you know, and, and he knows that I want to be a fixed wing pilot. A fixed wing is an airplane. He knows that I want to fly this thing one day. He wants me to fly this thing one day. So not only is he going through his checks, but he's telling me what the checks are for. He's telling me the rules, and I'm soaking it up as fast as I can. So clear the prop. This thing fires up, and it's loud, and the whole thing shakes, and I'm loving it already. So we taxi around. He's in communication with the other pilots, which if I remember correctly, this particular airport, it doesn't have a aircraft control or a flight control tower. And so you basically just transmit what you're planning to do to all the other pilots who could be in the area and receive that transmission. So we get onto the runway. We get pointed down the runway and he tells the other pilots that we're taking off and he hits the gas pedal and we take off in 300 feet. You know how when you're in a jetliner, you turn onto the tarmac, the engines spool up, you start going, you start going faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and you look out the window and now you're really hauling ass and you're getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and then finally you take off. This wasn't like that at all. This was gas pedal, acceleration, takeoff. And I was like, whoa, that is so cool. I am just like a child. I laugh out loud. I laugh out loud. And instantly, I'm just like a kid and so elated. So we turn to the east and we fly over Pal Butte. And about five minutes into the flight, he relents controls to me. And I get to hold, you know, because in the airplane, there's two yokes. There's two sets of controls. And I get to start feeling it out and flying this thing. And I actually have a little bit of experience flying flight simulators and have always been really curious. So I start flying this thing. And then he wants to show me some, um, some other tricks. And he wants to show me a zero-G dive, which he... Um, reaches back and he gets a hold of Poppy, the dog, and he holds on to Poppy and he kind of pushes the stick in so the plane starts to nose down dive and we pick up some airspeed and then he pulls back kind of hard and you, you see the you feel the G-force kind of pull you into the chair and then right as you're starting to go up, he pushes down on the stick real hard, which essentially just kind of tosses you and everything else into the in the plane into kind of a weightless moment as you and the plane start falling at the same rate. At this point, I am hooked. Let's rock. This is awesome. I'm loving it. So we fly out and we decide to... He's got a, he's got a brand new set of bush plane. They're called AK Alaska Bush Tires. So this plane has these tires on it that are huge rubber balloons, really low pressure. They're like the pressure of a raft, maybe like four or five PSI, six PSI. And so 
he wants to kind of like test out the new tires. So we fly to Prineville, which has a small airport, which is about 15 miles from where we took off. And he comes onto the comes into the runway, and instead of ru- landing on the tarmac, he lands in the dirt on the side of the runway because he doesn't want to touch his expensive brand new tires down onto the tarmac and put a flat spot in them. So we land in the dirt, turn this thing around, take back off in the dirt. Um, and when you're on the ground and you're not moving in this thing in the middle of the summer, the temperature in this thing skyrockets. It doesn't have air conditioning. The air conditioning comes through these little vents that come out of the wing. And it's like a really powerful fan, right? And you just get a couple thousand feet up off the ground where it's much cooler and it just cools the whole plane down. But sitting on the tarmac, man, the temperature just skyrockets, which I don't know if you've ever been motion sick, but if you're hot and sweaty, your propensity for motion sickness goes through the roof, or mine does anyway. And so as we take off and we start pulling back and I'm hot and sweaty and I can't quite see the ground and it's just blue skies, I'm like, whoa, almost getting a little queasy, right? And he says, oh, you're getting a little queasy? Here, fly. It'll help if you're flying the thing and not me. And so I open up the vent, get some air going on my face and I start flying the thing and he's right. Just within a couple of seconds even, I'm feeling in control and not dizzy or having motion sickness right and you would probably you're probably wondering well how do you fly acrobatics paragliding if you get motion sickness and i would say that it's a different kind of motion sickness and it's something that you build up a tolerance to over time so we start flying north of prineville and now we're in terrain that i've never seen um i'm familiar with Powell butte and the route between bend and prineville but north of Prineville is not really a zone I've explored much. So now we are cruising over the forest. I'm flying and soon enough Jake takes the controls and we start flying a little bit lower, a little bit faster because just as I know from paragliding, if you're going to be low, you better be fast. Speed is energy and An aircraft with a tail can turn the energy of airspeed into climb. So if you are doing 150 miles an hour and you're five feet off the ground and you lose engine power, you can pull up and gain a thousand feet of elevation in no time, just with the energy. Don't quote me on those numbers, but you know what I mean. I'm drinking lemonade. So Soon enough, we get to what used to be the Rajneesh Palace compound, which here's some more numbers to not quote me on. I think like in the 60s or maybe 70s, there was this crazy guy called the Rajneesh and he created this cult religion that the Rajneeshis all moved out to this big compound that was in this huge, steep, really remote canyon. And they built a massive, massive compound with all kinds of beautiful buildings. And they built like a irrigation system so that they could have fresh water and they dug wells. And anyway, later it was like donated or like sold for a dollar. This is the story I've heard. It was sold for a dollar to 
Young Life. Young Life is a Christian, a youth Christian association. And they've turned it into like this Christian kids camp called Wild Horse Canyon, right? So there's these all these different lakes. There's like blobs. There's all kinds of skate parks and zip lines and gymnasiums and basketball courts and you name it. They got it out there. Seems really fun. My little brother went when he was in like sixth grade and just came back with wicked stories. So we and Jake has flown here many times and there's actually an airstrip there, right? So since there's an airstrip there, we can legally fly really close to the ground. So we start hauling ass and we start buzzing right through this canyon and start checking out this this um, compound. And we pass over the airstrip with our wheels about five feet off the ground at about 135 miles an hour. I'm fully in love with this machine. This is incredible. And what an amazing experience. I just can't stop grinning. My face already hurts. I'm laughing out loud at most of these experiences. Jake just is totally entertained by my constant and relentless enthusiasm for this new experience that I'm having and we pull up and keep flying on right well soon enough we get to the John Day River which the John Day was our destination remember we're going to Chucker Flats at this point it is very obvious that we are in a remote place of the world these are huge huge private ranches around and they are bordered by massive swaths of BLM and national grassland land. So there's no one for a long ways. We're not even seeing roads. These are just huge expanses of land and the John Day River meandering through this, right? Which cuts a pretty nice canyon. And so before I know it, we fly over what I see is some rafters who have pulled over on the side of the river and set up their camp for the night. And we fly for a couple more minutes, which, you know, going fast a couple of minutes, especially as the crow flies, we're, we're going places. And so I don't see anyone else. And now we are flying really low. We are right down in this canyon and Jake starts slowing the plane down, pulling the flaps out, the flaps allow the plane to fly much slower without stalling, which allow you to land, right? You've all seen it in the, in the um, airliners when you look out the window and you come in for a takeoff or landing and the, the airplane goes and the wings get bigger. The, the backside of the wing extends out. Well, as far as I can see, there's no place to land right here. And we come, we are probably 30 feet off the water or 50 feet off the water, we come around this corner and I see a little tiny landing strip. And right there, first try, right around the corner, Jake swings in and makes just a perfect landing. It seems so easy. So we turn the plane around and we drive back to his preferred parking space. This this landing strip, <clears throat> it is, I don't know, five, six hundred feet long, not very long. And there's one big tree there. Next to the big tree is a fire pit and a picnic table. So 
we get the plane parked, we get out. I'm just elated. Couldn't be more stoked. Poppy, stoked to be out of the plane and runs and runs and runs and does little zoomies, like little burnout circles, so excited. So we get our stuff out of the plane and there's just no one around. And I can tell because I saw where we came from and I didn't see a person for a long ways and there's no road in here. The only way to get in here is on foot and you'd have to trespass and you'd have to go over miles and miles and miles of nothingness and then you'd have to swim across the river or you'd have to raft in here. You could raft or the metal steed that brought us here. I'm glad we had the mode of transportation that we did. So we get all our stuff out and it's probably three hours till sunset. And we are at the bottom of this huge and beautiful canyon. And so we decide to go on a big hike. So we put a couple beers in our backpack, put a little snack in there. Didn't grab any water, which was a hilarious decision. And we start hiking, right? Well, <clears throat> we get about maybe 150 feet vertically out of camp and Poppy sees a deer and Poppy bolts and Jake is yelling at Poppy, Poppy, stop, stop, get back here because he knows she's going to chase that deer until she catches it, which as a 17 pound dog, not going to happen or the deer loses her and she gets discouraged and decides to turn back. Well, this kind of makes a detour for us, so we start skirting around the mountain trying to chase after the dog, trying to find it, which we can't. And soon enough, we kind of just sit down and start waiting for the dog, and before too long, maybe 20 minutes go by, and the dog, we start hearing the clinking of her collar, and she starts running around the, the hill, which, I don't know, I can't really blame her, because I feel like we're dogs out here chasing our own deer, so we keep hiking up this hill, and soon enough, we get up to a part that has uh, probably a 250-foot cliff. And it's beautiful, beautiful place. There's a huge horseshoe bend in the river that nearly touches at the closest point, so it almost looks like a perfect circle from a certain place. And there's no one around. We see her we see our first wildlife when we see uh, five deer swimming across the river, right? And they're probably two miles from us. So we take the um, remoteness of our location, we take advantage of it, and we start trundling some rocks, which is a childhood hobby of mine. I love to trundle big rocks. So we toss a couple big rocks down this cliff and watch them roll all the way to the river. And we keep walking, okay? And before you know it, we see off in the distance a herd of bighorn sheep. And there's probably 60 of them. And they are what I would say running from us. We're not too loud and we're not moving too fast, but they are avoiding us and they are heading out of the way, right? We watch them for a minute. 
and the terrain that they're on is just, it's incredible how capable on the rocks these things are. They are scampering on the bottom of a huge cliff, above a huge cliff, on terrible, eroding, crumbling scree, right? No problem. Doesn't bother him a bit. Five minutes later, we look the other direction and we see a herd of a hundred bighorn sheep. Just incredible. I couldn't believe it. We look up, there's all kinds of different hawks. There's crows. I'm thinking, man, maybe the world isn't dead. Maybe humans haven't totally killed the oceans. And you just got to get away from all the cities and the people. And you'll find out that there are things alive out here. The hunters haven't gotten them all. So we keep hiking. And we get to the top. And the sun is almost setting, and we get to this very specific location where the view is just perfect, where you can see the horseshoe bend as the near-perfect circle that it is. I can now see exactly how we flew in and how Jake set up his approach and how the river showed him right where to set up, and we are stoked. We are so stoked. We are in one of the most incredible places I've ever been. We got here via one of the most awesome experiences I've ever had. And there is no one for miles and miles and miles, which is a unique feeling. I do a lot of adventure, and especially in America, it's hard to get, as the crow flies, that far from people. We are amazing creatures as humans. We have established ourselves in really harsh climates, in really harsh geographies, and we have figured out how to be in a lot of different places. So getting really far away from people is at times quite difficult. This seems to be a good way to do it. The wind starts blowing really hard. The sun is setting, and we decide it's probably best that we start heading down the big hill before it gets too dark. As we're going down, I can't help but notice there is no trail. I also notice that as I step heavily down the hill, that the soil is virgin and every step crunches inches and inches under my feet. The, per the frost in the winter, the freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, it puts big air pockets in the dirt, and it just makes the dirt so soft, and we just begin laughing and running down the hill. As we come around the corner, and we get off of one aspect and onto another, the little like climate the little environment that we're in it changes dramatically and i'm talking i'm talking in the in the space of a thousand feet we go from a the top is like kind of a barren sagebrush high desert scene and then we drop down onto the north side of this the shady side and it is lush green bunch grasses everywhere and then we kind of come around onto the west side and it is rocky and harsh and the vegetation that's there clings to the rock 
we keep cruising down and it seems to be taking forever and i think to myself we climbed up this my legs didn't burn i was so entertained on the way up i was so enthralled with the trundling and the wildlife and the remoteness and the uniqueness of this place and the novelty that I hadn't even noticed that my legs carried me up 1,600 vertical feet. They were noticing coming down it. <laughs> it takes us a while to get down, and we get down to the plane at nearly dark. But about 150 vertical feet above the camp, we just look down at our little private landing strip, at our little private picnic table, and our one shade tree, and we look at the beautiful white wingspan of the amazing human-made bird that brought us here. And Jake looks over at me and says, this is pretty fucking cool, huh? I didn't need to answer him. He knew what I thought, because I couldn't shut up about it the whole time. We got back to camp, made ourselves some dinner, busted out the recycling bin full of firewood, and we burnt every last piece of it. Sat there around the fire, and we bullshitted. We hung out, threw the stick for Poppy, who is relentless stick chaser. I laid out my mat, and I put my sleeping bag out, and I just slept right there in the grass under the stars. It was incredible. The stars are so bright out there. There's no lights to disturb you. The next morning, we just relaxed. We read. We threw the stick for the dog. We threw the frisbee. We did target practice with the 22. It's wonderful. Soon enough, we hear the buzz of an airplane. And around the corner comes a Piper Cub and an old 75-year-old pilot who puts it down right on the landing strip. He gets out of the plane and he stays for 90 minutes, of which we talk about nothing but bush planes with him. <laughs> a beautiful thing. Soon enough, the rafters who had camped a couple miles upstream of us come by and look at us with envy. Before we leave, I thought I could get some cool shots of Jake if he was flying the plane solo, so Poppy and I stay on the ground. Jake takes off in the plane, does a couple flybys on the river, one going into the wind I would say 140 miles an hour. One going downwind, probably closer to 170 miles an hour. All of which three feet off of the water. Jake showing his prowess. We load up our stuff. We get back in the plane. At this point, it's early afternoon and the wind is rolling up the river, which makes for a really short takeoff. 
since the wind is blowing we don't need so much ground speed since we already have the airspeed and i think we took off in 200 feet i couldn't believe it and we don't immediately pull up and out of the canyon we just keep flying right down the canyon right over the river making turns following the river beautiful we get up out of the river and we turn back with our limiting factor of what we're going to do now being fuel and we fly towards Mount Jefferson, one of my favorite volcanoes in Oregon. At this point, I'm doing a lot of the flying. We have a safe altitude and I'm uh, steering this bird, practicing. And we fly right up to Mount Jefferson and I get a view of this thing that I've never had before. There are lines to ski on this thing for days. The problem is how remote it is. It is in the middle of nowhere, tough to get to. It's all wilderness, so you can't ride your snowmobile back there. It's also, the entire east side of it is Indian land. So if you want an arrow in your back, it's a good way to go try to ski. But we fly back to Bend and we land and we go our separate ways. I thank Jake. And I just was so amazed at how unique but unknown, how I had not known about this. I knew that people flew bush planes, but I, you know, even my uncle was a bush plane pilot, but all the stories that I'd heard from him were like kind of rescue situations, like really utilitarian use of these machines. To see the recreational side of bush planes firsthand, I was just astounded. I came home. The next day I wrote that article that I read to you, and I was just amazed. So, of course now it is my life goal, or it is one of my life goals, to not only pilot these things, but to own one. I think it is the ultimate tool for fun and backcountry access. It is dangerous and it is adventure in the highest degree. I can't wait. I'm looking for donations now. If you've got a bush plane that you want to give me or if you got about a hundred grand lying around that you want to make my dreams come true, my PayPal is airy in the air at Gmail. So send it on over. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, catch you on the flip. Love you.